This is a presentation of Northeast Streaming Sports. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Mac and Jack Show. I am your guest co-host today, uh, the Philly Sports Guy, filling in for Mac, uh, and I'm also here with Hall of Fame boxing writer Jack Hirsch. Morning, Jack. How are you this morning? Hey, good morning, Pags. I'm used to you, so even though you consider yourself a fill-in, to me you're a regular, so we don't miss a beat. Well, you know, you normally I'm tremendously. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you, but you won't get on me as much as Mac will. I'm sure of that. Well, I, and I feel like now, now you have a whole show to get on me. I figure the mm. first thing that we were going to wind up talking about was the Flyers, but they haven't really had much to talk about, so I guess we can bypass that already. So, yeah, although the Rangers uh, lost game one and it, they, you know, their hockey playoffs are still going on, even without the Flyers playing. And it seems like it there seems like there's not really any interest in that whatsoever. But a lot of heartbreaks, packs during these Stanley Cup finals. I mean, I was in Florida for a good part of the winter, so I got to keep an extra careful eye on the Florida Panthers. And they seemed, you know, that, that this might be their year. And to lose a game with a few seconds left to get scored on on a defensive lapse to go down two nothing to the to the defending champion Tampa Bay Lightning that had to be a heartbreak, especially when it's two Florida teams. You know the feeling. That's like your Flyers losing to the Penguins if your Flyers were any good in that type of spot. Uh, exactly. It was heartbreaking, not to the Penguins, anyone but the Penguins. Well, and that's and I wonder how Florida is going to be able to recover from that because ultimately, you know, Florida was the number one team. But I've been saying all year long, I thought Tampa it was Tampa's cup to lose after winning the last two. Uh, that team just knows how to turn on the switch and know how to play in the playoffs. Florida has a lot of you know uh, young youth that haven't had a lot of playoff experience. And I felt that that's really where it came into play here, that uh, that's where you were going to see most of the, you know, the veteran leadership of the Lightning be able to come through. And I still think it's their cup to lose, you know, and unfortunately, because Giroux is playing on the on the Panthers. But, you know, I still feel that that although Calgary is making a, a big wave over in the Western Conference. You know, it's but like, if the Lightning do win a third consecutive cup, yes and no, are they, are they a dynasty? Three in a row in the modern sense. Three years isn't a huge body of work per se. When we think of dynasties, we think of at least a decade. But let's be logical about this. We're not going to have that again where teams are going to dominate over 10, 20 year span. I don't count the New England Patriots. Even they, six Super Bowls in 20 years, that's 30% of the time. You know, they were, yeah, yeah, they had won it. I mean, that's the closest we're going to get. But now Tampa, three cups in a row if they do it, dynasty right. in that. Yeah, I, I mean, well, and, you know, I'm a firm believer that winning begets winning. And Tampa as a whole, I mean, you had the the Rays in the World Series a couple of years ago. You have, you know, obviously Tampa Buccaneers winning the Super Bowl. Then you have the Lightning winning the Stanley Cup back to back. I mean, and they only have they only have three sports. 
you know, and it makes me think, you know, I was alive in the 1980s when the, when Philadelphia was the, it was the golden era of sports. And yeah. it was the only time that uh, any city had four consecutive teams in the champions, in the finals. But when you think about it, Florida had the same thing because even though Tampa doesn't have a basketball team, the Miami Heat were in the NBA finals. So, and that's not that far away. I mean, it's a couple hours, but even still to have that whole region uh, being the finals, all four of those, you know, for all four is pretty, you know, impressive. So, yes, I would say for a modern day, for a team to win three times in a row in any sport in, in this day and age, especially when you have free agency and the amount of money that's being put into there, that is that is a dynasty. I mean, you would call the, the Dallas Cowboys of the 90s a dynasty, and they won three times in four years. And who thought? Who knows how many more they could have won had Jerry Jones had you know a little bit less of an ego. I, I don't know. I don't know. Would I go for that? I know they won the two in a row. Then they lost one year to the 49ers before winning another one. The 49ers had an exceptional team. Who's to say the Cowboys would have beaten them? And the 49ers beat the Cowboys the year after uh, Jimmy Johnson left with Barry Switz as a coach. But Switz was a coach the following year when they won the Super Bowl. And if you look at Jimmy Johnson's body of work when he went to Miami, he was an okay coach, but he didn't improve on what Don Shula did there. So I don't know do I necessarily buy that whole theory. You know, Jerry uh, Jones screwing it up. Jimmy Johnson... Uh, by all accounts, wanted to leave anyway and wasn't going to hang around. So I, I don't know that we put a particular blame anywhere. Well, and I thought that he was only looking to move on mostly because he was, you know, he didn't like how Jerry was kind of talking with him. You know, it was like Jerry felt like that he was the one that was totally in control and, and Jimmy felt like he was the one that should be totally in control. And ultimately they split ways. Then I mean, to live in Miami, I think. I think it was a lifestyle thing. You have a chance. Look, he was a Miami Hurricane head coach, so he was used to life in Miami. He had roots in Miami. He had an ambition to go back there. And the Dolphins still had Dan Marino. And Jimmy Johnson didn't know Dan Marino was going to start his decline as Jimmy J Johnson got there. So if you have Dan Marino waiting at quarterback in a good, in a good team, a decent team, you feel I want to go there. I could live there. I could maybe win a Super Bowl there. But, you know, it didn't quite work out. They weren't that bad. They went to the playoffs three out of four years. But basically, they mirrored what Don Shula did all those years. Right. And that's kind of – and ultimately, you know, when he got to Dallas, he had uh, Herschel Walker. You know, that, that whole trade set Dallas up for years. You know, mm -hmm. and he didn't have that in Miami. You know, you didn't have that type of uh, cash, in essence, to be able to just, you know, start to rebuild your entire, you know, organization, which is what he did. I mean, obviously, I remember he going 1-15, you know, that first year, you know, and just getting beat up all the way around. And then, of course, it just takes a couple of years, and next thing you know, he's in the Super Bowl and, you know, going back-to-back -back Super Bowls in three and four years. So, and he was absolutely a great coach. I mean, and this was after he had gone, he had won the national championship, but had brought the national, you know, his team to the national title. I think the same thing, three out of four years. 
I, cause I, I remember that whole, that it was, you know, uh, uh, Jerome Brown. That was the whole Jerome Brown team uh, that he didn't want to, they didn't want to have dinner with uh, Penn state. The alumni were having this big dinner before the orange bowl. And, uh, you know, Jerome Brown said, no, we don't, we don't, you know, yeah. the Japanese didn't eat with the Americans before they bombed Pearl Harbor. And I remember the kicker from Penn state saying the Japanese lost the war. And then Penn State won that national championship. I think it was the really only true national championship that that Joe Pa actually won. So, okay. yeah, I mean, you're talking. You were talking before to started the show about certain cities, like all their teams combined, how good they're doing sports wise. And once in a while, a city is going to go on a run. Like the term title town USA was started with in Pittsburgh when they had the Steelers and the Pirates together, you know, as champions. And New England, not that long ago with Brady, they'd win a Super Bowl and the and the uh, Red Sox would win the World Series and the Celtics would be up there for the NBA title. So it was kind of like a dynamic time. I mean, you're not you're not quite having that impact in Philly right now. It's kind of a struggle. Uh the Flyers, I mean, the Flyers are irrelevant right now. The Phillies are barely hanging, and they still might make some noise this season. We're not discounting. They might make a run at the division title before it's over if the Mets falter just a little bit and open up the door. The 76ers, you wonder whether going forward they're going to advance. I think with the Sixers, the one thing they're not going to do is be stagnant after next year. Either they take a serious run towards the NBA title or they slide backwards and they have to kind of reboot, if not rebuild. And I think the big issue is Joe Lambie keeping them happy. Packs. I don't know whether the Sixers could keep Joe Lambie happy. I think the only thing for sure that could keep them happy is an NBA championship. He wins that. He'll be a smiling big man. He'll be good. But if they have another disappointing year, Joe Lambeat might very well force the issue. And it's easy to say, oh, the Sixers aren't going to trade him no matter what. They're going to play tough. But they said that with Ben Simmons. And let's be honest about it. Any NBA star, if he wants the bad enough, could force the issue. And of course, the Sixers would get a boatload in return for Joe Lambeat, but trading Joe Lambeat, I just can't see it helping at least short term. Well, uh, I, it, it's hard to fathom, you know, what a trade with Joel included, like even in a couple of years from now. I mean, because ultimately he's he's not getting any younger, and he the way that he plays, he's always putting his body on the line. So ultimately, that's one of the fears that you had. He started out, he was a little injury prone. Of course, he played more games this year than he ever has. And I, I feel that next year he probably will play even more so because I, I think first and foremost, he has the MVP title on his mind. You know, that I, I always kind of felt that, you know, even as a Philadelphia fan, that he has always had the MVP first and winning a championship second. Yeah. That he wanted to be listed as the best player in basketball. Did he deserve uh, it this year? I agree. I agree. I felt that he did too, and I, I felt I that think he did. 
Yeah, when you when you hear some of the things that that happened, where some of the people who had votes didn't even watch some of the games and listen to their you know interns, their interns made the pick for them because they didn't watch enough NBA basketball, and, and then and then to see some of the stuff like they're like, oh, I should have watched Joel more because you know I listened to you and and you're the one that said you you just you're from New York and you're a Philly hater and well, that's well, well, the well, reason Pats, why. But Jokic got it. Was Denver that good this year? How valuable was he for Denver? He's obviously very valuable. But what I'm saying, the Nuggets were in a force this year. I right. Mean, I agree. I agree. And he's not a two-way player. He's, team. you know, he was a defensive liability uh, where Joel is yeah. typically first or second, you know, team defensive player, you know, all NBA. And I, I just feel that there, he, I feel that Joker to win a back-to-back -back MVP, I feel that you have to be better than your previous year, you know, and he didn't. In fact, he, his numbers were slightly under what he did last year. So, and then for the, it was the first time a center was, you know, led the scoring, you know, in, in the NBA since, I guess, since Shaquille O'Neal did it. You know, so it's been that long of a time and of course, Shaquille O'Neal won the MVP that year because it was that important. So I, I feel like that this is still part of the media hate to uh, the process. You know, that the process that the Sixers went through because they verbalized the fact that they were tanking to try to get three players specifically to try to win a championship. And that that was the only way that they felt was a good way of going about it. And, you know, Hinky, for all of his flaws, you know, he wasn't quiet about like he I think that if they just weren't as loud about it, they probably wouldn't have got as much media attention. However, I mean, at one point, I think it was like, you know, very early in the process, the team won like three games in a row with, out of the first seven games. And immediately they had to send people down to the D league because they just didn't want to take the chance that these guys were going to win anymore. They proceeded to win another five games for the rest of the year. You know, and it was like, it was, I think they were at one point like six and three. And then, you know, I think they won 11 games all told. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the process. And then you think, then you hear about all the stuff with the Jimmy Butler stuff in terms of, how they chose Brown and then eventually Tobias Harris over Jimmy Butler. And that was how Tobias Harris got. Well, I think Ben Simmons was in the equation. Uh, the, well, the he was, was Harris and Ben Simmons over Jimmy Butler. I don't think it was a, a coach Jimmy Butler thing per se. Cause I think Brown was on a bit of thin ice regardless. No, no, that's so that's what's, that's what's come out in the media here is that at they had brown was the one because jimmy butler was making a kind of a, a coup within the locker room against brown him and brown egos clashed tremendously and that it necessarily wasn't ben simmons although everybody thought he didn't like playing with ben simmons that was how it was portrayed you know the truth of the matter is is that i guess butler was making some waves in the locker room Ben wasn't as receptive to those waves. And, you know, so like he, he, that would be looked at as he's kind of siding with Brown. 
really he wasn't siding at all because you know Ben Simmons amongst everything else is just wishy-washy well Jimmy Butler has an edge to him that's kind of iffy I don't know what to make out of Jimmy Butler I mean he's been on a few teams he started out at Chicago with Tom Thibodeau and he was at Minnesota with Tom Thibodeau a while but then Thibodeau left from there then he went to the Sixers then he went to the Heat a guy who's that good of a player doesn't move around as much. And I know you could say LeBron has had a few stops, but LeBron has done all that by choice. If LeBron never wanted to leave Cleveland in the first place, there's no way the Cavaliers ever would have let parted with LeBron to begin with. But imagine that. Had LeBron never left Cleveland in the first place, he never would have had one championship. They wouldn't have drafted Kyrie Irving. They wouldn't have picked that high you know, at the time Cleveland to get him. So as it turned out, it was a good move by LeBron. But with Jimmy Butler, you kind of wonder if he was a good soldier, at least at Philadelphia, would they have moved on from him? If he bought into everything and was, you know, and didn't create any waves, you kind of wonder. Well, yes, yes. You could, you do wonder how far they could have Mm -hmm. gone. I mean, think about I mean, they literally missed going to the conference finals by a quadruple bouncing ball, you know, from Kawhi Leonard. You know, literally had that ball missed, who knows what could have happened. And, you know, to see then a couple of years later that Butler takes a team, uh, like they were an okay team, but they were a ragtag team for the most yeah. part to the finals against LeBron. Game to yeah. six games too. Yeah, and, and and totally on his back. And yeah. I feel that it was totally on his back that they beat the Sixers. I mean, anytime they needed a bucket, the Heat, you know, the Heat pulled one off. They just gave it to Jimmy, and Jimmy, you know, that's why they call him Jimmy Buckets. Yeah, you know what I mean? The, he was able to put put it in the hole. The greatest individual performance I ever saw, basketball wise, was Allen Iverson getting a win over the Lakers in the opening best four out of seven. And, of course, the Sixers got demolished the next four games. But the reason I say it was the Actually, greatest they didn't achievement, get demolished, didn't they? let me say why it was the greatest achievement, because the Lakers were so much better than the 76ers. The 76ers weren't in that Laker team's class. And the idea that they could actually win a game over a team that was so, so superior to them, you know, was awesome on Allen Iverson's behalf. Uh, I I would agree. However, people seem to forget in game two, the Sixers were only like it was a it was a weird foul call away from winning that game. And, Mm -hmm. you know, had they gone up 2-0, who knows what the series could have been. Now, once they came back to Philly, I mean, it really wasn't, uh, it wasn't a series anymore. You know, at that point, they they just, you know, they lost Game Three, and then Game Four was a blowout, and then the Lakers came back and won Game Five. But at that point, it really was all about, you know, they like said had they gone up 2-0 in LA, whole different story because they really did play the Lakers really well. But I'll never forget, because I, I remember watching game four specifically, and Olajuwon literally putting all of his weight on Shaquille O'Neal. Like his legs were spread out and back. And he just was resting his entire chest on the back of Shaquille O'Neal, and Shaquille still overpowered him 
to get to the basket. And you just knew at that point that the series was over. There was nothing else that was going to be able Greatest to Greatest sixth of play of all time. I mean, do we count Wilt in this or consider uh, Wilt? Do. Yeah, I'm if we let okay, a second greatest, Allen Iverson, Joel Embiid, or maybe Dr. J. Because I grew up during that entire time, Dr. J is still, you know, still on that list. I mean, I would Allen Iverson is like over icons, Dr. J now, but it's I would say that they are probably you know two A and two B, and, and then Joel Embiid is he has to just get the longevity. Well, you you have enough. You could consider Dr. J a, a net. You know, he played a couple of championships in the ABA. That counts. So you can yep, maybe. No, that's, but then some people are going to say Kevin Durant or Dr. J. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, I would say, you know, uh, Kevin Durant or Dr. J. Uh, I think Dr. J was more innovative for the time. Uh, Kevin Durant is, is a great player, but, you know, you got to get that. Dr. J didn't really play defense and. uh and that six a team that lost to Portland, I could never forgive them. I could yeah, never well, forgive uh, that team. You don't let I mean Portland was united. They they played as a team. The Sixers played as individuals, and it was like distorted. It was it was like that was that was Bill like Lambeer team, wasn't it? Was that Bill Lambeer? No, what's his name? Bill Walton. Bill yeah, Bill Walton, Maurice Lucas. It was just uh it, just to let that get away. Wait, you know, I hate that when a team is up to nothing and they let a series get away. I mean, how can you beat one team two games in a row and then sometimes lose four in a row to them? Look, it happened last year with the Phoenix Suns uh, going up to nothing against Milwaukee, a team that's not necessarily better than them, yet Milwaukee wins four in a row. You know, a lot's been going on packs in the news with Patrick Beverly and Chris Paul. You know, him making all these statements about Chris Paul. It's easy to make Patrick Beverly out to be the bad guy. And Patrick Beverly sounds like a bitter individual. He's making it sound very per personal. And if uh, Patrick Beverly would have put it in a nicer, more diplomatic way, you know, you'd think of his points a little bit more. Because I'll be honest, I never considered Chris Paul as good a point guard as some of the others uh like like jason kidd for example i would rate ahead of chris paul i'm gonna slip him in here just because he's been sitting backstage for a second said uh, let him let him talk about a little oh, bit of basketball know. we're always know. talking yeah, about football oh, how football. you doing byron hey byron, good morning. listen you should good know morning. by now byron is it knows more football than any of us but when it comes to the other sports byron doesn't really follow him I know quite football, a bit about boxing. One hundred percent. He knows more football than you and I, eleven no combined. But other sports, I don't know. But I just think Byron, he'll sit back, he'll watch the game. But I don't know whether he understands the other sports. So, Byron, Byron, how do you respond to that? I, hey, you're absolutely right. You 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 hit the nail on the head. So I, I know a lot about football. That's for sure. Yeah, but I mean, I mean, but right now, I mean, you you live in Dallas currently. The Mavericks are in, you know, the conference finals. I mean, there's got to be some type of excitement that's building around that. The stars are out now, obviously, in that overtime game, game seven. So, you know, unfortunately, that's you know, hockey's done in Dallas, and 
you know, Don't forget I, the course, Texas Rangers, they're three games under 500. They're actually a little better, teeny bit better than we thought they'd be. Yeah, we. I took my grandsons to the game last Friday against oh. Boston, and we had a great time. And uh, it's exciting just to go to the new, to the, you know, Globe Life, the new um, stadium that they built. But um, they 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 trying to play some competitive baseball right now, anyway. Yeah, yeah, you know, you take them to a baseball game, it's more relaxing than a football game because a football game, when they, you know, you're really watching each play kind of intense, you know, intensely baseball, it's just more relaxed. I think it's more like a social thing for fan. It's more social than competitive when you go, unless it's a really big game. But football is competitive all the game. I know Pags, when he goes to the games, I mean, he's very emotional for the Eagle games. He's into it, but I can't imagine him getting nearly as into it for a Philadelphia Philly game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, but we, you we, haven't seen me at a Phillies game. Yeah, we had a good yeah. time, man. I mean, we went to the suite. We went to the suite, so it was, it was a little bit different when you go to the suite. And um, but we you know we went out there on the balcony, and the boys were just yelling and trying to get on the camera and all of that type of stuff. But it, it was really fun because every now and then you get a pop up and a foul ball, and you think it's coming your way. So they they trying to catch a ball and so forth. But but yeah, uh, it was it was a lot of fun. Your boys like. But Byron, your boys might like baseball so much they might say the heck with football. This is what we want to do, kind of like Kyla Murray. Exactly. Kyla Murray football. Exactly. That's why I'm taking them to some baseball game. Let them get used to some baseball because football is a so-so game, man. I, I, uh, you know, I live. I played since the fifth grade, fourth grade, and I, I, I just, uh, you know, looking at my body now and thinking about all the wearing terrorists on my body, you know. It really sometimes is it worth it or what? But it's so competitive, and people just love the game because of the way the nature of the game, and everybody had their favorite team, their favorite players, and stuff like that. But you know, it's it's decided just to play, and then it's, it's plus it's decided to score a touchdown on the in the National Football League. So you know, mm. that's that's right. a little boy dream. So well, let me ask this question because you do live in Dallas, and obviously you're a Giants fan. Are your kids Cowboys fans? They are. They uh, my my well my my grandboys. They uh, I call them my kids, but their dad is a huge. He grew up here in Dallas as well, and he's a huge Michigan fan as well as Cowboy fan. That's what all they have. That's all they talk about in their house. So when I go there, I take the giant stuff, and you know they they can't deny it. But yeah, it's 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 a constant battle, you know. Hey, I understand. Hey, listen, I, I, the mother of my children was a Cowboys fan from Dallas. So, you know, there was, you know, and I found out very late, you know, it was already too late. She was already, uh, you know, seven months pregnant when, when I found out that she was a Cowboys fan, because it, you know, it changed things. You know, I told her she could pick the religion, but I picked the football team, you know, and that's just how, that's how we lived it in our house. Right. Right. <laughs> so, but anyways, but but you know it's good. It's good to have that competition. I meet a lot of couples that they they cheer for one team that and the other the other one cheer for the other team, and it's always a constant battle, you know. And 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 during during those seasons when when the team have a good season, you know they get the right to 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 make all the decisions in the house or something like that. You know, you can always have that, those kind of wars and things like that. Right. And so and I like those wars. I mean, it's fun for me. Speaking uh, of wars, let's talk about the Eagles and the Giants here. Let's uh, because you're running upswing packs with the Eagles. The Eagles are making a lot of nice moves. They're looking better and better. 
So, it, it, yeah, you know what, since he, it was a good segue right into, you know, what I wanted to talk about with you primarily, Bradbury going to the Eagles. Now, the first thing, I mean, you kind of had a very similar situation. You weren't with the Eagles for very long, and then you, you went to the Giants. And even back then, I felt that the Eagles and the Giants were a lot more you know, they were real rivals. And then, of course, the Cowboys were always there. But it was the Eagles and the Giants that was a real rivalry. When a player does make that move to go from one team to the other uh, of a rival, how is that perceived within the locker room amongst the locker rooms that they left? I think it's perceived really well because that player coming in know everything, know all the insides of, of that team. And – um it's, it's amazing that he can tell the little thing about the receivers. Uh, he can tell the other defensive backs uh, some things about the offense and the style. He can tell the tendencies of Daniel Jones. You know, maybe he liked those certain types of routes. This guy got a little bit more in-depth uh, knowledge about what they do, what the tendencies are, and things like that. Uh, when, when I, my first game against the Eagles, when I went to the Giants, you know, I had 167 yards against the Eagles. And uh, my best NFL game. So I was pumped up, fired up, you know, excited to play against the Eagles. And, man, uh, after the game, a lot of my old teammates, uh, Mike Quick and all those guys came up and say, Byron, man, we should have kept you, you know, and, and, and which make you feel good. But, you know, the nature of competition, the nature of the beast, you know, you hate to see guys that play in rivalry, you know, competition like the, the NFC East. And uh, hardly ever you see that. But this day and time with the free market and the way players can go and move is different. But when players go and play their old teams, it brings some excitement, brings some things that you want to say. I want to show the not only the, the team, but I want to show the fans what, what they you know what they had on this team. So it's, it's very comp competitive, and a player will take it on their own and say, hey, I'm going to have one of my best games against, against my former team. But aren't there mixed feelings, Byron, on one end, you want your old teammates to do well because they're friends of yours. On the other end, you want don't want them to do so well without you. You want them to think, wow, you know, I'm not with them anymore. You see, they should have kept me. So they're kind of mixed feelings there, right? Right, exactly. It's always going to be mixed feelings because you still got some, you know, you got um, it's some emotional um, lift of, of still wanting the best for some of your close teammates because some you know relationships is is for life you know and and so you're exactly right you still got some mixed feelings uh, about the team but you know you you do too it's a career and you want to make sure that you can go on and, and and get to the Super Bowl and win games and that's what's important as well. You know, I, I, let me just say this with Pax. Pax mentioned James Bradbury is going to be playing cornerback for the Eagles. He's going to be going up against the Giants uh, twice during the year. The receivers who he practiced against, he might be going up against, unless someone's, you know, new or whatever. But who has the advantage, the cornerback, Bradbury, or the receiver? Well, I, I think I would say if they hadn't changed coaches and didn't hadn't changed a lot of the things that he's familiar with from last year's staff, he would, uh, uh, Bradbury would have the advantage, but now with new systems in there, you know, it might be uh, even kill. I mean, it, it just depends on what the game plan is. You know, players are healthy. You know, last year they didn't have a top running back. So I, I think this year um, 
it's, it's probably still 50-50 because of the game plans and the things and the tendencies that these teams have to change going against certain types of defenses and things like that. So I think I think uh, it just depends on that week in preparation. Uh, but I think um, if I was the Giants receivers, I would want the challenge because um, they're playing against two good corners. And they these guys are, uh, are real tops in their, in, the, in their position that's playing in the National Football League. So I'm thinking that the Giants have a lot to prove. They, you know, and and unfortunately they just couldn't keep him because of the salary cap. Right, and it, it, it's it's funny when I mean when you think about it, it's all due to money. Mm-hmm. And I know that the Giants, like Gettleman, really kind of strapped cash strapped the Giants because of some of the contracts that he put out there. And you know, unfortunately, he was one of the ones that they'd get a lot of cap space back by cutting. So and. I mean, I guess it, it, you know, how frustrating is it for Bradbury, who literally was supposed to make $21 million? You you have a mindset. So maybe you think, oh, well, I guess I could get cut because of this money type of situation. But you start planning your life for the fact that you're going to get paid this amount of money. Then all of a sudden you don't get paid that money. You get right. cut. And now right. you got to go. You know, is does that go into the, some of the thought where he may have been able to say, hey, well, somebody may, you know, the Green Bay Packers may have wanted to give him $11 million or $12 million, but because he had a little bit of a thing, a chip on his shoulder for the Giants, he decided to go with the Eagles. Now, I'm only going with possibility. I, I have no idea if he got any other offers from any other teams and if that was any more money than what he got paid for by the Eagles. But do, do, would you think that a player does have some of that in mind? Absolutely. Uh, I, and, and plus, he only signed a one-year contract. So he's thinking, if I go and make the Pro Bowl this year, I can you know, go in at the negotiating table again next year and make the money that I, I need because m- most of the money that he's going to get after this season, some of gonna, a lot of it is going to be guaranteed money, right? So I'm, I'm thinking that he's real, in a real good position. I think now he needs to stay healthy, stay focused, and have an awesome season because now, you know, if he can go to the Pro Bowl and 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 become the free agent that he wants to, he's going to get that. He can make up for the money that he lost, even though it was maybe $10 million or whatever. But I think he'll be – he's really sitting in a good position. I just think he just needs to stay healthy, stay focused, and then help the Eagles win. And and, and think about this. The Eagles might want to give offer him a four- or five-year Contract, Is he I that good? I, I never saw him being that good of a player. I mean, with you're talking about four or five-year contract. I mean, I'm surprised the Eagles picked him up at that price, I'll be honest. I don't think but, he had that good a year. Yeah, I, I think he's I think he's good. I think he was ranked in the top 100 players last year. And well, Actually, uh, I mean, he, so as of right now, when while being paired uh, with – uh, in the Eagles cornerbacks, they yeah. are now, they, they elevated themselves by the way that the two of them statistically as the best, you know, defensive backfield in the NFL. Yeah. You know, in the last the six years, Bradbury. I was saying the last six years, Darius Slade and him are the two top defenders for us mm-hmm. knocking down balls. So I think they, they do have some, they do have a lot of skill set that go, that, that may, really going to set them apart. And I think if they play focused football, they will be, in the top four shitting down some of the top receivers. And Byron, are the Giants going to regret letting the Kobe Dean slip to the Eagles because they had all these injury concerns? 
I, I think so. I, I just think you it, you you just can't put no more emphasis on the depth. I mean, you got to have depth in the National Football League because of the, the injury factors and the long and the long eighteen week schedule that we have. You know, you have to have that depth. And so, and I know you, you probably love answering this type of question. With all of the offseason moves that the Eagles have done, and the way that this draft went, especially with. Uh, the defensive side of the ball. I mean, obviously they pick up AJ Brown in the midst of all that, which is really, I think changes their mediocre receiving core to probably the top in the NFC East, you know, and possibly in the top three of the, you know, NFC in total and the upgrades to the defense. Do you feel that the, the Eagles could start to make a real run? you know, from what you saw from last year and, yeah, still some of the question marks that Hertz has. Right. You know, do, do you feel that they could be in that top tier of teams that could possibly, you know, go to the Super Bowl and represent the NFC? No doubt. I think the Eagles are in a position now to be the top 10 in the top 10 teams in the, in the football league. It's, it's Like you said, it's the only question mark. It's the, it's the quarterback decision-making and how mature he can become. And I think the Eagles um, right now put themselves in a position to go deep into the playoff and maybe win the Super Bowl. No doubt they're going to be the top-tier team in the NFC East. I, I feel that because if these guys can stay healthy and with the season and with the schedule that they have, I think they're in a position to be just like the Rams did last year. Well, and that's, that's quite – because I feel like that the Rams did lose a little bit on their defense and – uh, I, I firmly believe that Von Miller was a lot more integral mm -hmm. in part of the defense, you know, in the Rams winning the Super Bowl. I feel that, you know, they, they had been there. They hadn't, you know, they hadn't won it. You know, you need guys that know how to get over that hump and actually get the ring. You know, and if you don't have that on your team, you're not, you know, it, it, you're still unsure of yourself. Absolutely. You know, I felt that Von Miller made that difference. And now he's not there anymore. Right now they all have a ring, so it's a little different. But you know, I and still it, think that that's a tough. Uh, and are they going to get comfortable just winning the ring? Are they going to still be very competitive? I'm trying to continue to be the team that they can particular particularly be for his competition, and that's the key factor. But to me, I just think the Eagles are in a good position, uh, just based off the personnel that they had and the things they've done this offseason. And I also look at the OTAs and what's leading up into the month of July, how important these guys can get together, get the chemistry, get on the same page, and and, um, and know each other real really well in the in the uh, in the film room. I think that's the key factor as well. Now, speaking of receivers and speaking of the Rams, Odell Beckham Jr. had a little bit of a resurgence, caught a touchdown pass in the Super Bowl and got injured during the game. I don't know the status of his injury right now. No one's really talking about it, but he doesn't have a team right now. Some rumors are that maybe the Packers would be interested, but, I mean, what happens to certain guys? Like the Packers, I mean, the Rams moved on from Robert Woods. They let him go to Tennessee, and him and uh, Cup were pretty much equals when they were with the Rams, and, you know, in half a season changes everything. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's the thing with the NFL now. You know, you just can't keep guys together no more. You can't keep that, that same receiver core. And, um, and unfortunately, guys, got they're going to have to make these moves for them and their families. But there's just the nature of the beast now. And 
And I just think it's it's sad that um, it's like that, but I think too it's it's good for the players to make more as much money as they can, and and um, because this game is short, this is really you know five years, six years, and you get towards that when you're in that twenty eight to thirty two age range in the NFL, it's all fair games for them to make a decision on you. But did the skills diminish that much? Take the take the case of Sammy Watkins. He's with the Packers. Twenty eight. They he's picked him up. No one is talking about him as a weapon for Aaron Rodgers. They keep saying, we got to get Aaron Rodgers help. We got to get him help. They got him help. Sammy Watkins is a heck of a receiver. Well, he, had, he had less than 1,000 yards last year too, though, right? No, no, but I'm saying has his skills diminished Sammy Watkins that much? Is he that? He's not that old. No, he's 28. And, and right. I mean, so I don't get it. That's a major acquisition to me. Yeah, and unfortunately, it's just I don't know what it is. When you change these players like this, it's a lot more goes into the chemistry. Is he going to be playing inside receiver, outside receiver? And then the route that they have to run, the depth of the routes and things like that. Can you create mismatches? Is he going to be – is this guy still um, a player that they need to double? No, he's not a player that they need to double. And, you know, it's it's, it's just it's just that this, this game changed so much so many interchangeable pieces and then these players might not fit into the style of offense um that that's that the Packers have. But but Salmon Washington, yeah, he definitely an impact player. But uh have he got a thousand yards the last couple of years? No. He's he's around eight hundred to nine hundred yards a season. And that's a now that's an average. That's not whenever you get over a thousand yards, now you're making a a player that's valuable to the team. So I think partly because you have running quarterbacks in this day and age. Yeah. And some teams, their best running back is their quarterback. Like people yep. ask me, who's the best running back in the NFL? I say Lamar Jackson. <laughs> and that they don't count that, but that's what I say. Right. Yeah. And then, and, and, you know, Lamar Jackson did with, did with MVP, but, you know, what's, what's better, win the MVP or win the Super Bowl? I think the Super Bowl is more valuable. And, um, and you have to put emphasis on winning the Super Bowl because that changed the whole dynamic of, of playing. Now, winning dynamic. MVP to these guys because it means the money, the contract. I hate to say it, they, they'll never admit it, but guys can win a Super Bowl and get cut and guys, you know, who win an MVP are going to be in big demand for big dollars. It's just the reality. Yeah. Yeah. Like Aaron Rodgers, he making 50, he finna make 50 million this year. So there you go. There you go. Pay, he's a top paid quarterback. Is that correct? Well, so let me segue into this then I'm, I'm, I'm going to play a little bit of uh devil's advocate, or at least, at least pick your brain as if you were OBJ. Mm-hmm. So now you're OBJ Myron. And you, you have this injury. And, of course, nobody's signing you right now. Is this one of these things where you decide that you want to wait maybe towards the end of the season and go the whole season as a free agent and go with a team that has the possibility of going to a Super Bowl rather than signing with the team right now and sitting on the bench that entire time? Is there a certain thought process specifically because – you are OBJ and you've had all of these issues and problems that have happened in the past with different teams and, you know, starting with the Giants, going to Cleveland, you know, just bouncing around and doing these types of things. And, you know, let alone now it's like, okay, I'm not with the team. I have to rehab anyways. I could just sign with the team in week 15, week 16 
you know, where I'm able to maybe get back on the field, start practicing, and maybe help a team in the playoffs as somebody who's now this secret weapon that comes out of nowhere because they, they didn't have him before and now they have him. Is there a thought process that goes to that, or do you want to sign with the team right away because you want the money? Yeah, I think it's a thought process. One of the thought process is, too, that he constantly in communication with his agent, and his agent is being contacted on a list of teams that they they probably think about what, what he'd probably be best fitted into for us going to that those particular teams. And I think right now he probably have four or five teams that he, they're closely looking at. And, and really it's not no hurry to, to sign. I mean, because it, he's not going to do anything right now, but, but rehab and, and try to get his body back fitted to, you know, to play in, in the competition. So if I was him, I would just sit and, and continue to see what team would make, you know, would be in a position of not only to, Get me make I can make my top money as well as going into the playoff and maybe possibly win another Super Bowl with that particular team. So, you know, I'm pretty sure that's what he's looking at. But I'm thinking too, you know, teams like a Green Bay and playing with Aaron Rodgers and 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 seeing if that's something that's fit is probably at the top of his priority list. But right now I wouldn't be in a hurry just because of the fact that, you know, look at what he did what he's done every where he's gone. So I'm thinking if I was him. I just slowly rehab, make sure, uh, and then look at the top teams that that's contacting my agent and seeing what best fit. You know, they're showing him at these basketball games, and and so he constantly, stay, you know, staying active and staying engaged. But it, I, I know he got a lot of other things that's uh, that's hitting him up as well for his appearances and things like that. But I wouldn't be in a hurry. I just continue to continue to work out and and have about four or five teams that that I'll be concerned about going and playing for. Byron, but the number, I mean, half the teams in the NFL easily would pick them up at their price. Yeah. I mean, it's a question of the price. And right. I think right. it comes down packs also when a big name receiver goes down with an injury, which is bound to happen, and OBJ is out there, then he becomes very appealing. They need to grab someone and they need a quick fix and he'll be the closest thing to a quick fix. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, it's not going to bound to happen. It's going to happen. It's just like DeAndre Hopkins. I mean, he, he's out for six games. Yeah. It's based off of what happened to him with the Cardinals. So, you know, and, it, and he's, you know, when you bring a player in like, like OBJ, you know, you got constant, um, success a path that you can come in and change the dynamic of the offense. And I feel like that a very a, a black, you know, or, or dark horse uh, that could possibly get OBJ if oh, he doesn't sign with anybody before the season begins, mm -hmm. uh, I think is Denver. You know, I feel like Denver is one of the spots that they could really benefit by having him even on the field as a decoy. Yeah. Uh, it would, would make a big difference for them because I just don't feel like, I mean, they've got Russell Wilson. I, I don't really believe in their, their receiving core at, as it's currently constructed. And that makes me believe that, you know, that OBJ like, eh, you know, I mean, obviously money's going to talk. And if somebody wants to pay him money to sit around and learn their playbook, then he's going to probably take that. But that no, all Pat, being said. Right. You make a great point when you mentioned Denver because with all the talk about Deshaun Watson, what the NFL is going to do discipline-wise, no one's talking about the potential with Jerry Judy. He had something in the news. I, I hope it's not true. It might be totally untrue. 
Yeah. But there's some off the field activity that the NFL is going to look into, you know, very carefully as far as domestic abuse or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. And we hope it's not true. No one's saying it is. But the NFL, without a doubt, is going to look carefully into it. And you never know if he had to miss some games if they came to that conclusion. They'd certainly want an OBJ, you know, as someone of that caliber to fill in. Exactly right. And that's one of the things I was thinking, too. Denver might be a good fit for him because Russell Wilson and and, and plus he can go, go over there and make an immediate impact for, for a good team that's positioned to, to win a lot of games this year. Right. And that's kind of how I feel that 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 AFC West is so stacked. Right. In terms of and it's going to be a dogfight to get in. I think that they're going to wind up having three teams in the playoffs. And to do it that way, it's that's going to be when you don't want to be that fourth team. You know, you don't want to have to play for a tie, you know, to to get in the playoffs. Chargers and Chiefs, you're giving them all a playoff position. Uh, You know, I was going to say this. Another good thing about Denver, it's it's hard to beat them at home. (laughs) For years, it's just hard to beat them because of, of, uh, you know, the – the atmosphere and the uh, and the elevation of the of everything over there it's just hard well, for teams to come in and beat. The Eagles did it last year pretty handily, so. But they didn't <laughs> have Russell Wilson. They did. They, they did not have Russell Wilson. I'm going to tell you, I might be in the minority here. I think Russell Wilson is a good quarterback. Now he's he belongs in the Hall of Fame when his career ends. Don't get me wrong; he's had a, a Hall of Fame worthy career. I don't quite put him in the elite category. When I say elite, I'm talking about Mahomes, Rogers, even Joe Burrow. And I'm not, I, I just don't put him there. I put him maybe a little ahead of Derek Carr right now. And that's about as far as I go. And I'm talking about right now. Yeah. And and, and one of the things that I want to see how he can make the adjustment with the with the with the uh, flight of the ball over there in that in, in the atmosphere. Um, it's, it's going to be something that I want to see if he, he can, if he'll be able to mass manage and, and control when he, the philosophy of the ball and how it come down to the receivers, because, because he do have a good, uh, sparrow and, and, uh, flight of the ball. And I just, I'm just wanting to see how, how it's going to change the dynamic of his game for him because playing in Denver, you know, John Elway had a master, paid man had master. And, uh, I want to see if he can master you know, throwing in that, throwing in that stadium. So that's interesting because I, I, you never really think about some of the specifics or, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, of, Hey, you know, he's got to take a touch off of the ball a little bit because it is going to sail on him or, or go a little bit faster. Right. And you're saying that, you know, obviously Peyton Manning and John Elway was there forever, but Peyton Manning was not. And he was able to kind of make that happen after a couple of seasons how much time do you think is really necessary for, I mean, this is a professional quarterback who has played in the league, has played in Denver. So it's not like he's never played there before, but to be able to, you know, accustom their game to hit some of the idiosyncrasies of just the location itself. I think he, I think he beat by him being a professional professional. I think probably within a month time OTAs, I think he have it down, you know, and he's the kind of guy that always work out in the off season and, and then get receivers to come in and, and um, they, you know, get familiar with their, their style of play and their, their route running and things like that. I just think if that's what's happening, I think he's going to ha- definitely have an advantage. 
You know, you talk about mentorship because Ryan Tannenhill came under criticism by saying he didn't feel he had to mentor Malik Willis. I think it was taken out of context, but that's another issue. But all the Denver quarterbacks in recent years, they had John Elway there to mentor them. And it hasn't quite worked out. I mean, what's the deal over there? How come no one talks about it? Do you think think the great John Elway taking these guys on this wing, you know, they would have been better than they actually were? Yeah, and I don't know if John is really wanting to mentor guys for running the operation of, of, of Denver. He's running the team. You'd think I he'd know, want to he, do that. He ain't got time to mentor <laughs> the, the quarterbacks. I think the quarterbacks need to take it on themselves to, to go out there and learn. Maybe he'll talk to them about certain things and case scenarios of how his game plan fitted into the equation. But he got so many things on his plate. I don't think he oh, want to come on. You mean John Elway can't go hit the field with these guys and work with them for a while? You don't think you'd think he'd want to do that? I don't know. I don't know, man. I don't know if that's that's something that he's doing for his operational side. That he's supposed to okay, Byron. Byron, when you were a receiver and you were with and any team you were with, if Jerry Rice was an executive up there in the office, and you know he was there, and he just didn't work with you, didn't hit the field, wouldn't you want the great Jerry Rice to come down and constantly work with you to help you improve on your game? You'd I would be involved him. I would definitely want his insights and some of the things that he could t- tell me and equip me to to prepare for, but I don't think he's going to have time to, to actually mentor me. That's what I'm saying. So the, let me ask this question then. So, uh, I mean, ultimately, I, I hear what you're saying, Jack, but the truth of the matter is, is that it was 20 years ago when, you know, John Elway played. John Elway does not have the arm. I mean, he has the knowledge and, and things like that, but it was a different NFL then. Right. How much do you think that quarterbacks today are going to listen to a mentor from 20 years ago? Uh, and say, okay, well, this is what we did back then, and, and it would still kind of worked today. And, and you're like, yeah, pops, I, I, I'm, I'm all right. I got this. You know what I mean? How how much of that do you think would happen? I feel like that it would be more of an ego situation, where it's like, yeah, old man, I I, I got this. I ain't worried about what you got to say. <laughs> yeah, and and, and, and Elway, not to take nothing from Elway. Me and Elway was in the same draft class of '83, so we both 60, 61 years old. So. Well, like when I do these football camps, I bring in the young players because the the kids want to listen to the young player. They don't want to listen to me, even though I got the insight and I I run the camp. I step back, but what I what I've tried to get kids to understand that there's so much things that you can can take in and learn and techniques and 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 and, and your right foot, uh, your cuts, your angles. I, I just got to talk to the guys today. He said we was talking about trying to catch a football. I said. What I what you don't do, you don't catch a football. You catch the point of the football. If you if you keep it in your mind and, and say I'm, you know, you say point point point. Guess what? Your mind gonna program you to locate the point of the football. So you're actually catching the point. And so when you when you break it down, and I said one of the things when I had my first daughter, I my name the football Brandy. So when whenever somebody throwing me the football, I'm catching Brandy. And so those are some of the things I think an older guy can come in and. And, and inform guys of the little things that they can break down and, and, and get focused on versus, you know, they don't hardly run the passing tree no more. There are passing trees that we learn, but now these guys are running at certain depths, certain routes, and it has to be a timetable on, on from the quarterback to the receiver on releasing and catching the football. It's, it's a whole different concept. 
Good point. Yeah, then it's all it's all like a clock in your head rather than yeah. The big O Oscar Robertson, I think it was he who said it, you know, not long ago. The modern NBA players don't even know who they are. They walk by guys like him and Bill Russell, like no idea who they are, like they don't even exist. They're from another, you know, they're like dinosaurs to the modern guys. Yeah, and that and that's part of it. Unfortunately, uh, it really is more it's valuable if these guys knew who they are, who they were, and pick their brains and talk about some things because you know, you know, I was watching, you know, um, Magic Johnson, and a lot of people don't know about Magic. You know, they only somebody they know about is. Uh, is I Michael don't know George. about that. I think Magic no, Johnson no, and modern guys saying, relate to him. But, yeah, but they don't know. They don't know that Magic Johnson and Larry Bird changed the game. You know, they changed the game. You know, before the end with Dr. Julius Irvin, Dr. J, you know, and, and, and now, you know, these guys don't quite understand who these guys are. Well, they, they do Dr. J because they see the highlights. They love the dunks. The dunks don't go out of style. So you see a Dr. J old yeah. clip on the dunk and they love it. But the I mean, history of the game is so important. I think, you know, it's, right. but there's different, there's different things that really change the dynamics. And some of these young cat kids don't understand. Um, but, yeah. Uh, is. And, and, and hey, listen. Without that even thought process, you wouldn't have the conversation. Who's the Who's the best ever, Michael Jordan or LeBron James? Well, even I mean, your because... Philly fans are guilty. Chuck Bednarik. How many you know people talk about him in Philly? Is he still a legend in Philadelphia? Absolutely. But Chuck Bednarik was also the last of the last of a completely dying breed. Where he played both sides of the ball. He was out there for. 57 minutes to 60 minutes of play in the NFL. And that he was the last one to really do that. I mean, strike, you know, like when you have uh, Deion Sanders, who yeah. started to play offense and defense. And, and then you had that one Patriot who started to play cornerback because they were so hurting at cornerback and, and was playing both sides of the ball. I mean, that uh, on occasion it does happen. But for the most part, Chuck Benerick, I mean, he was in the trenches the entire game. So, yes, you know, that is iconic. When you think about it, to, you know, in this day and age, nobody's doing that now. There's not anybody who's able to make that happen because the game is so much more. Uh, I think Chuck Panarik would be able to play in this game, but he would only be able to play defense. He wouldn't have been able to play offense. Yeah, uh, I think he'd have been still been a great middle linebacker just because of his mentality and his toughness and his grit. But to be able to do both sides would have been impossible. And as he got older, his body felt it. You know, it's yeah. like he was tough getting there you know, just to be able to get up and in and out of a car. So, but, but yeah, I, it, 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 no, no, um, hey, and anything, and another thing too, Jack, I didn't even, I, I played both sides of the ball in high school. I didn't even lead the football field. Could you imagine that? You're lucky. If I was your coach, your career would have turned out differently, Byron. I would have made you a cornerback and kept you there. You would have been a good cornerback. You would have had a good career as a corner. And there goes, and, and see, he would have been an NFL coach and not been a boxing writer, and we would not have all of the great stuff and the great stories that Jack has, you know, probably because he probably would have not. So you're telling me football. Byron couldn't have played the corner. That's what. You're oh, I believe absolutely back. he could have played the corner. He, he would have yeah. been a darn good cornerback. I was all state safety. I was all state safety. I don't know if you knew that. I would like you a corner. I would like you on <laughs> corner one to one coverage. So you like to lay the hit every once in a while. I, I dig that. A mistake. That's why if you made a little mistake, you could recover quickly. 
But you know what? I get a lot of I get a lot of insights from Jack because he he trying to make my grandsons long snappers, deep snappers. That's why the you know what that's hey John Dorenboss. That's what he did: magic and snap the ball long, and, and he made a fourteen year career out of yeah, that. There you so go. I mean, there's no, that and being a kicker. You know, Morton yeah. Anderson never you know, he worked what till he was like seventy four. You no, know, you kind of want the kids. They like the glamour positions. You know, offensive linemen. They have no choice but to play offensive line and defensive linemen because they're big. They're not going to be receivers and you know, cornerbacks. But uh, you kind of like wonder kids who are lighter, who could maybe put on a little weight. They like glamour positions, either receiver, or cornerback, or running back. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, and that you got to know that, hey, just being on the team is important. And making and, and getting paid is a, is, a, is the second thing important. So, yeah, absolutely. I know, but they, people come out to see you play, family, whatever. Let's say you're blocking all game. That's not the most entertaining thing, you know, to see. But if you're a receiver, they like to see a cut, make a move, maybe catch a touchdown pass. Your cornerback, you know, prevents something. Even, you know, a safety, a linebacker. They get in the flow a little bit, but just, you know, you know, if you're defensive lineman, you could get a sack, but yeah. if you're just blocking uh, your long snapper, it doesn't do it. Even a kicker gets, you know, some of the glory you enjoy watching. And but, that, uh, yeah, that's kind of what my family is experiencing now. We got a, my great nephew is a six, 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 uh, three thirty at Texas tech. And uh, he, he's a, he's a big boy and uh, he's, he's in the, they in there in the off season and man, you know, it's, it's fun just what watching him. Uh, he's he's a left tackle, right tackle. There you go. And wow. so it's fun. It's fun watching him because they used to see me being a receiver. Now they got to see this lineman. So that's exactly right. Yeah. So it's, it's not the same. <laughs> well, I tell you what, Byron, it, it, it's great having you. I, I, I'm glad that I get to talk to you like this. You know, unfortunately, I'm in here for Mac today, but uh, I appreciate getting to actually talk a little bit of football with you because I don't I don't I often get to do so. So. I appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, thank you very much, and we'll see you next Friday. Or you, you stop in on Sunday with Mac and Jack. I don't even know. I, they um, don't want me on. They got they got Jim Jeffco on there, so they they don't. Uh, want me yeah, on yeah. That. During the season, I mean, no, we talk other stuff besides football with Jim. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Uh, see, I see. You have to you have to expand your repertoire. You got to start figuring out more about the Dallas Mavericks. Yeah, Dallas Mavericks <laughs> and, and boxing and all that good stuff. Yeah, exactly right. There we you can go. use some hockey on the, you know, if you could give us a Dallas Star report. Yeah, yeah, Dallas Stars, they they did good this year. I'm proud of them. Mm -hmm. Exactly, exactly. They 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 went to a tough seven game series. So, but uh, anyways, I uh, we appreciate Byron Williams again. Uh, thank you for coming on the show, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you guys. Thank you, Have a great weekend. Uh, you too. All right. All right, so uh, coming up here, we have Keith. He's going to be – he's in the backstage already, so we'll come right back after this commercial. And, uh, of course, I've got some of the old commercials, so I went really old with some of these. So we'll be back here momentarily. times when only an ice-cold beer will do. And there are times, like this one, when it's got to be Schaefer. 
Schaefer, like any fine beer, tastes wonderful in that first cold glass. But, and this is what really sets Schaefer apart, the pleasure of this beer doesn't fade after one glass or two. Even after your thirst is gone, the pleasure of ice-cold Schaefer keeps coming on. Your last one is every bit as rewarding as your first. That's why... Schaefer is the one beer to have when you're having more than one. David, and in eight years, I'll be an alcoholic. Hi, David. I'll start drinking in middle school, just at parties. But my parents won't start talking to me about it till high school. And by then, I'll already be in some trouble. Kids who drink before age 15 are five times more likely to have alcohol problems when they're adults. The thing is, my parents won't even see it coming. So start talking Who's next? before they start drinking. The Hometown Foundation is excited to bring back the Dream Ride Experience, August 26th to the 28th at Connecticut's Farmington Polo Club. Join us in celebrating the accomplishments of our Dream Riders while enjoying live music, a car and motorcycle show, family fun zone, pet adoptions, canine demonstrations, the Fireman's Chili Cook-Off, and much, much more. Get your tickets today. Right now, without LeBron, Lakers are, are struggling. <laughs> Let me tell you about a team I hate, all right? I know the Dallas Cowboys fan is here, so I had to make sure he knew how much I hate this Oh, team. I'm ready. I've often said that the people who run baseball, they try very hard to ruin it. I'm not Brooklyn. I don't have a problem saying it to his face. Welcome back. We're here again. And uh, like I said, as backstage from TGI Sports, the guy who usually comes on on Fridays right before I do. Oh, Keith Engel. Good morning. Listen, I saw that Schaefer commercial. I had to run down and get myself an ice cold Schaefer. I felt like I was with my dad in 1968. Thank you for that. Uh, hey, you know what? And the fact that they had to open that with a can opener. <laughs> yeah, that was the one thing that I, yeah. I saw in that commercial. I'm like, wow, they actually had to open up both sides like that with a can opener. Well, there's usually coffee in my cup, and I think there's a little Schaefer mixed in there now. Hey, that go. was the official beer the New York Mets. Yeah, it right? was, yeah. 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 Well, well, no, it wasn't Ryan Gold, too. I thought, that was, I thought Ryan Gold was the Yankees. One, Valentine, Valentine, Valentine was, beer was the Yankees. Yeah, yeah. I remember Mel Allen used to do the Valentine. You're just beer. a little older to me, Jack, so. See, and I, I was yeah we we had Schmitz here. So Schmitz. Schmitz was the name yeah. was the was the old beer of choice back then. Yeah, I remember Schmitz too. Man, I'm old. Yeah, well, uh, you guys are definitely older than me. 
So I'm well, the young one of the group. Colorado Rocky Coors Field is that Coors? It is with the beer. Well, they're huge. They built a ballpark for them. I think is where the yeah. you know they get the naming rights. I should say, yeah, they pay for the naming rights. So, so Keith, I mean, obviously, I don't follow much about the Patriots, so we don't really care about them. But, but <laughs> yeah, I know that every time I always hear you talking about the Yankees. So I took a look at the Yankees and how they did yesterday, and of course, they lost. You know, to you know, Baltimore. Uh, however, they did win this series, which I found is a little different than they normally do against Baltimore. So for some reason or another, Baltimore has their number. But yeah, recently in the uh, the the uh, formula for winning the American League East is winning about you know going sixteen and two or seventeen and one against Baltimore, and then holding your own against everybody else. And the Yankees haven't done that the last couple of years. This year, now that's two series in a row. They lost the first series of the year. But it, they're always pesky for the Yankees. I don't know why. You're right. So, but I I can understand that because the Marlins always seem to have the Phillies number, and I mm -hmm. never can figure out why. It's like the Phillies can can do win three out of four games against the Dodgers, and the bats go crazy, and then of course they come back after beating also San Diego two out of three games in San Diego. Then they come back here and they muster a whole three runs in three games. You know, and they're starting pitching and even their bullpen is doing pretty well yeah. because obviously they let up only five runs this entire series and they lost two out of those three games because the bats are just so cold. And that's what they need. You know, they need to score runs to win, right, that team? So that's – well, every team needs to score some runs. We know that. But uh, that team needs to score runs more than others. They can't waste good pitching performances when that's not your strong suit. So – but I, I, so I know that you're not the biggest Aaron Boone fan, and yet he seems to have the Yankees uh, in in first place, uh, and really the a, you know in the AL East specifically. And I think that they're really up in the top with the AL in total, aren't they? Not I think that they have. They are. The they are leading the American League in uh, victories. Uh, maybe baseball, but uh, let me look quick. They could be leading the uh, all of baseball in victories. Listen, he's done a better job this year. Obviously, and I, I, my problems with Aaron Boone are, are multifaceted. So I have a problem the way he doesn't hold guys accountable. I've watched some horrible base running, horrible defense in the past. And that's your a lot of those faults have gotten better. They've hit better in the clutch. Uh, they've run the bases. They played much better defense. That's been one of the keys at her turnaround. And in past seasons, I haven't seen him hold guys accountable when they did not play well, didn't play good. They made mental mistakes, which you can't. Those are excusable. Physical errors are going to happen. Mental errors can't. And my other big problem with Aaron Boone was the way he kept his job this year. And I'm go never going to, he's never going to get my respect back when he lets management throw his coaches, including his best friend in all of baseball, under the bus and fire them to keep his job. And you want to reverse this when Buck Showalter was fired by the Yankees in 1995, uh, going into the 96 season. It was because he would not make changes in his coaching staff. They offered him to come back if he fired these two or three guys. And he said, no, they're my guys. They stay. I stay if they stay. And they fired Buck. That's the difference. I lose respect for guys. And I don't know how you're They got a decent coaching staff. Don't get me wrong. But at some point, that hurts you in the, in the business when coaches are going to wonder if you got their back or you're going to throw them under the bus to keep your own job. Okay, let me throw this idea at you, Keith, Okay. He's close with them on a personal level. 
But let's say Buck Showalter analyzes the situation and he's thinking to himself, as fond as I am of these guys and as much as I wanted them, they could have done a little better. I can understand the change of scenery that the front office wants to make. Right. Because, I mean, I've been at a lower level where I coached in high school. I had an assistant coach I was very fond of. And his performance, I saw it slipped at a certain point. Obviously, it's not the same. You don't have upper management telling you you have to make a move. That's different. But if they did, I, you know, I would understand it a little. Maybe that's the case. Maybe the coaches came to the realization, we understand the team underachieved a little bit. They have to make a move. And should he have necessarily have stepped down? I'm okay if he fired his own coaches, right? If he made the decision to say, Phil Nevin needs to go, I need a better third base coach. I need a different bench coach. I need a different pitching coach. But that wasn't the case. Management came to him and said, we're making these changes. And I don't think it's a good situation in any sport for, for the manager, the coach, whoever we're talking about in whatever sport it is, not to have his people on those coaching staffs. It's never a good situation. You set up you set up situations like the Mets had years ago where Willie Randolph is getting stabbed in the back by Jerry Manuel every day. And Jerry Manuel gets his job when he gets fired. You can't have those situations. And you set up those types of situations if coaches and managers don't have their own people in place. Yeah, but do you think maybe he was on board with what management was doing rather than fighting? He's like, hey, listen, I mean, do you feel that I mean, and it sounds like to me that this is how you feel, that you felt specifically, I'm trying to save my job no yeah. matter what, and you guys can do whatever it is you want to do. Maybe yeah. he was on board, and that was part of the, the negotiation. Like, hey, this is my best friend. I think I feel like this needs to come from you guys rather than from myself. It's, yeah. you know, like so much with Aaron Boone, I think, yeah, he got on board with it after the fact. That's, but that's not the same thing as being proactive and saying, I need to make these changes. He should, and there's nowhere I've seen any of this portrayed where he went to management and said, we need to make these changes next year. None of these conversations came up until Aaron Boone's job was in question of whether he was going to be back for another year. Yeah, but wouldn't you think that they would keep that under wraps? I mean, obviously you don't want, no. you don't want to hear that the coach didn't have faith in his coaching staff. You know, I mean, you want to try to keep that, Still I'd, all much rather hear that. I'd much rather hear that that Aaron Boone or any manager didn't have faith in his third base coach or his pitching coach, and he decided to make the change, and management didn't make him make the change. Because, again, well, who's running? coaches should have, managers should have autonomy when it comes to their coaching staffs, in my mind, again. And I don't think Aaron Boone has it now. I think he had it when he got the job. I don't think he has it have autonomy. Keith, they don't even have autonomy these days to make up their own starting lineup. Well, I mean, that's a great cases. point. That's <laughs> a great point. Again, and, well, that, and with the Yankees more than anywhere, I, there's no way not to feel like that lineup's not coming down from Brian Cashman and whoever else he's got. Uh, I mean, Joe Girardi makes up his own lineup. He still has that power, even though there's some discontent. No one's going to tell Joe Girardi who to play. They're going to talk to him about it. But he's, you know, he's going to, he'll eventually get fired for that reason, unless the Phillies turn it around. But for the most part, managers, I hate to use the word puppets, but they are puppets for the GMs. The GMs are given the power to run the organization and they tell the manager exactly how he has to do things. 
too many of them, but I don't think that's the case across town with Buck. I don't think Buck. No, not at all with Buck. No, Buck does his own thing. Buck has the power. He has the power to do what he wants. Uh, Aaron Boone doesn't quite have it. Brian Cashman likes Aaron Boone a lot because he he respects him a lot. It, because and Aaron Boone will do what Brian Cashman yeah. wants. And, yeah. You know, and Brian Cashman will listen to Aaron Boone's viewpoint and consider it if Aaron Boone feels strongly about it. But but Aaron Boone's always going to defer to Brian Cashman. Yeah, it's good for Cashman because he's got a place to deflect all the blame because Byron Cashman's been here forever and he's been to one World Series since 2003. Let's not forget that. This is the New York Yankees, not the Kansas City Royals. Let's give the Yankees a break. They're the best record in baseball right now. I know. Again, I, 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 again, I, I said this last oh, week. I said, said last week. They I know Pax wants, we're going to talk about the Phillies in a little bit, but I'm going to just say with the Yankees, the wheels might start falling off because I'm going to tell you, they have three positions where they have absolutely no hitting at catcher and two outfield spots. Aaron Hicks and Joey Gallo aren't going to suddenly start hitting, and they're not going to get hitting from the catching position. That's going to catch up to them at some point. If anything should happen to Judge, Stanton, Rizzo, Donaldson, yeah. cool off. Yeah, Lapo, think- you know, my you know, he might cool off. Uh, you know, I mean, I can just see the wheels coming off gently. They can carry two of those guys, not three, though. I mean, Gallo and Hicks have got to hit, right? Or four guys. They're not going to hit. Realistically, they're not going to turn it around big time. No, I can, and I can live with uh, Kiner Falafa and the the catchers not, you know, knocking the ball out of the ballpark every day if they play good defense, which they are. But I need all the rest of the positions to be clicking, and I can't have Aaron Hicks hitting 200 and Joey Gallo being a human. He's played better recently. But him being a human wind machine up there, I mean, they, they oh, we have one of those on the Phillies. I'm sorry, what's that? We have one of those on the Phillies. Which His which name which is Schwarber? Oh yeah, Schwarber. Well, Schwarber's not as bad. Schwarber produces somewhat. He had a Does great. He? By the way, I got I, since you brought up Schwarber, I got to say he had a great great meltdown against Angel Hernandez. Uh, was that last week? It was awesome. Uh, yeah, it was actually it was two weeks ago at this point. Where it's like <laughs> you miss him up ago? here, you miss him down here, you miss him left, you miss him right. I mean, that really was. Uh, but you know what? Since then, he is he's not performed really well at all. And I mean, even as as well as they were hitting in Dodgers Stadium. They he went like oh for that series or like had one hit nope. in that series. It was so bad, and I I saw that coming. I I mean he's a career two thirty hitter who had a good season last year. I didn't think he was worth the money that he was. I know he hit some home runs. He had thirty two home runs, but he averages somewhere around twenty to twenty five home runs a year. So I, I mean he cashed in on last year, and I'm no fault of his own. I mean, hey, make the money if you can make the money. But I thought that the Phillies really overpaid him, and I wasn't really excited about that signing. And now he's he's even below the Mendoza line. Pax, yeah. did Girardi want him? Was he a Girardi guy? I don't know that answer. I, would I know, know that's – I mean, there wasn't – when you looked at the free agent names that could make a splash during signing, he was the one, top on that list, and I still – I didn't see it. Like I just I'm like, how is it how is it you can't look back two years ago that you saw how bad he was? And now you gotta keep him in the field where he's not a left fielder. He's really a DH. He should be at least a DH. And you know, like when you see like that one error he had the other day where the ball just went under his glove. 
you know, you can't do that as a, as an outfielder, as a professional outfielder. And it's, yeah. you know, it's frustrating to see those types of plays, especially when you're not producing at bat. Yeah. You know, I've never been a fan of the guy, but for some reason, the analytics guys love this guy. That that's who loves him is the guys who are really, that's almost everybody who leans so heavily on analytics today. I mean, they look at his on-base percentage and because again, it's a three outcome uh, uh, syndrome in baseball, right? He walks, he strikes out, or or he hits a home run. Yeah, the problem is is that he's hitting, he's striking out a hell of a lot more than he is hitting home runs, and yeah. it's you know, and I look at him, so I look at him as like a very very poor man's Cruck. I feel like Cruck was a much better hitter, much more situational hitter, had yeah. power when he wanted to use it, but never really used it. I, and just was was just strong in what he was strong in. Yeah. And I look at Schwarber as always swinging for the fences, doesn't know how to go opposite field when he really should start trying to figure that out because they they really are shifting everybody to the, you know, to the right side of the field. And it's like at what point do you realize, you know, all right, when you're hitting 180 and you're striking out a tremendous amount and you're not connecting you know i remember when pete rose was talking to like the big hurt of and a rod about batting and he's like listen the swing is what got you to major league baseball <clears throat> so maybe move up in the box move back in the box move a little left move a little right so that you, you know change the way you're looking at the ball a little bit don't change your swing and I got to feel that that's a little bit of what's got to happen here, that he's got to start to play a little bit with where he's standing, mm -hmm. you know, not necessarily the stance, but just where he's standing and how he's approaching this ball to maybe change some of the outcomes. To just keep going up there and to keep whiffing and to keep whiffing and to keep whiffing has got to be frustrating. And then it starts to affect you in the field. Yeah. I'm gonna, I was glad to hear you bring up John Crook because there's a guy that I think is a, like an underrated ball player. You look at his numbers and there's nothing to really get excited about. But he was a clutch player, as you mentioned, uh, Pegs, and, and, and knew how to play – hit in different situations and and he had a personality something baseball lacks terribly today in, in a lot of cases he had a wonderful personality and the game misses guys like that in my mind and he was you know, close to a 300 hitter so yeah yeah, yeah you no know, you mentioned something keith before which i take a little bit exception to with the walks okay let's say a batter gets up four times he goes 0 for two but gets two walks with the bases empty that's a productive you know, day, but his batting average goes down because he's on a situation. It also Jack. depends how he gets the walks. If he yeah. battles the pitcher and earns the walk, okay. If the pitcher's control is awful, you know, and he gets first base obviously by default. Like yesterday, Aaron Hicks actually battled to a couple of full counts, fouling pitches off, but then when he'd strike out, it would be ball four and he'd swing at a low pitch, and that was frustrating. Look, it it depends on when you get the walks too, because again, I'll go. I'll refer to Joey Gallo a couple of weeks ago in a game the Yankees were playing against. I, I want to say Toronto. I'm not sure. In the ninth inning, it's two to one. Uh, they they got two men on base, two men out, and they got I think Falafa and the catchers coming up behind him, and he's got to drive in the run. He's taken. He walked. Okay, so in, in the scorebook, that's a great bat he walked. That's a good, successful in today's game. 
That's a very successful outcome. Except I need the guy to drive in the run because the two guys passed behind the baton. But he passed the baton. That's I mean, no, if it was, it's Aaron Judge, you don't want him to pass the baton. You don't want balls. to walk. But with Joey Gallo, I mean, it's not bad. The next guy, it's next Jack, man two, up. Two of the pitches were pitches he could. They were balls, but they were hittable balls. They were just off the black, and he got a walk. But he should be swinging and driving in the run. And when he did swing at that bat, of course, he was swinging for the fences, not for a base hit to tie the game. Well, let me throw this to Pax, for example. He's complaining about Schwaber. We're talking about Gallo. Let's take these three dimensions. Gallo sets um, amongst the major league record holders of all time for striking out in a season, but he's amongst the league leaders in getting walks, and he hits 35 to 40 homers, and he plays an excellent defensive outfield. I mean, isn't that the type of guy you maybe want, even with his 176 batting average? He's great defensively. Hits no. thirty-five to forty homers and get and is amongst the league leaders and walks. When you Again. look at the whole package, it's maybe a little better than we make it out to be. But we look at that horrendous batting average and the strikeouts. Yeah, but it's again, Jack. It's the it's the time of the games when he's doing whatever he's doing. You got to you got to dive deeper into those forty-five home runs. How many did he hit when they were up six to nothing? I mean, that we, we aren't taking that into account. And again, I go back and I look at a bats where I need him to drive in a run and he's not doing it. He's taking a walk or he's swinging for the fences. And that is, again, it's what's, it's a, it's an epidemic in baseball, the way it's played today. It's, it sounds it, like, Keith, awesome. you've become an analytics guy. You no, want to analytics with Joey Gallows. No, not necessarily. No, again, again yeah. I, the numbers are important. I don't disagree, but when you get the numbers, are important as well. If I was just an analytics guy, analytics guys love Joey Gallo. Brian Cashman loves Joey Gallo. That's why he's here. And, and it's the same way with Schwarber. But I, I tell yeah. you, Carlos, I got to disagree with you here. It you know the the bullpen lost that one Mets game seven you know eight to seven. Short of that though, they have been doing their job. I mean, literally, when you lose games three nothing and two nothing, don't tell me it's a, it's a bullpen that's causing the issue because when you're getting quality starts from your starters and, and then you're having your bullpen not give up any runs and you have the best hitting team in Major League Baseball at least as it was two days ago. Uh, I mean, it may have changed because they got shut out two games out of three. That's the problem. That's the issue. You're not, and Schwarber is same thing as you guys are talking about with Gallo. He gets on base because he gets all those walks. Truth of the matter is, is that they are not trying to walk him. They are actually trying to strike him out now, and he's been obliging. He's been getting struck out too often of times. And you know, literally, you know, when you have Castellanos behind him, is not is not doing his job. JT Real Muto is having a lower, you know, <laughs> not his typical season. So there has been a couple of things that have happened. I feel that all of the bats for the Phillies will start to wake up here a little bit as we move into. I told you I needed them to be at 500 by July 4th, and after that, I feel that that's when they're going to make their run. I still stick to that. It's that the hitting weather is going to help them a little bit. But I need yeah. Schwarber to play a little bit better. I need him to get on base more than what he is, and he's not. He's just continually striking out over and over again, and that's very frustrating. When you're batting okay, one They can't use him as a DH going forward the next six weeks. Not with Harper. So they need Bryce Harper. Harper can't, can't, can't throw for six weeks. I don't get it. He can't throw, but he can bat. How's that going to affect his batting? 
So uh, ultimately, the the throw motion would continue to it's the UV joint or something like that, and yeah, it's the so. throwing motion is what would cause more damage. And if he was to get surgery, he'd be out for the rest of the season, wouldn't be able to batter nothing. So that's why they're resting the arm and saying, okay, you're not going to you're not going to throw the ball for six to eight weeks. You know, kind of like. You know, uh, I guess the crosstown rivals of the Yankees that you guys like to never talk about, the Mets, who are also having a pretty good season, just had a big hit to their team, you know, where, where Scherzer is not going to be able to throw for six to eight weeks because of an oblique strain. You know, and now they're both of their DeGrom and Scherzer, the two guys that they were depending on to be able to carry them through this season, are both out. They'll be yeah. back. No, but they'll be back for well, for six weeks. July, by the middle of July of that bounce. That's a long right. ways and a lot of games. It's a long ways, but if they hold on and both guys come back and they could stay the course the rest of the year, the Mets are going to be tough to beat. This way you I find mean, how much does Russ then fall into play? I mean, because DeGrom's not going to be ready to play. Scherzer's not going to have been able to throw for eight weeks. Is he going to have the same type of stuff? Now you're getting closer and closer to go time for the playoffs. And the Mets, you know, at the Mets, as usual, I feel like you're going to Mets it up. Well, again, that's why I said the, I think the most important move in the offseason was hiring a Buck Showalter by the Mets. And we're going to find out now because Buck's going to earn his money these next six weeks because he's got to keep them in contention for them to have any effect when they come back. So you guys are right. talking about like Buck Showalter's like Vince Lombardi is someone he's going to have that type of impact. He's been around forever. He's managed forever. He's been a good, solid manager, but he has, you know, you, you put down, listen, Keith, you put down the Yankees and Brian Cashman. They haven't won a World Series since 2009. Well, Buck Showalter's never won a World Series, but well, you talk glowingly of Showalter and you go after Brian Cashman. Well, Look at the teams he put in. He goes after Joe Girardi, who won it in 2009. Let me tell you, Buck's Buck's whole uh, uh, resume would look a whole lot different if he didn't leave the Yankees in 1996 because him and and Michael built that dynasty, not George Steinbrenner, not Brian Cashman. Buck Showalter and Gene Michael built that dynasty, and he didn't get a chance to capitalize on it. Joe you got to give Steinbrenner credit in the equation. He was involved in He was suspended while they built that team. He wasn't even there. That's why they were able to rebound. No, George no, no, no. George Steinbrenner listened, okay? Case in point. Case in point. No. He listened to Gene Michael when Steinbrenner wanted to trade uh, Mariano Rivera. Re- Michael told him don't, and Steinbrenner listened. I love the revision of history of George Steinbrenner since he passed away. God bless his soul. I love George, but the revisionist history of what of what George did in his time with the Yankees is amazing. He rebuilt them in the 70s, yes, but then he ruined them for almost two decades. So well, Hold on. Was, was How many times did he hire Billy Martin? Five times. He, I, I think it was like a six-time Billy Martin was, was getting ready before he, he tragically at the yes, accident. Yes, he was. He was going to get a sixth opportunity, ready, most yeah. likely, is what it looked like. Yes. And so, and I, I know that they were always. He was always buying championships, is what I felt. I feel like Steinbrenner was was really big at buying championships. And the only person I can think of that bought a championship better was Izenga down in Florida. When I don't Darryl like Dalton. that term. Guys, you know, I, I hate it. Look at the Dodgers. 
I mean, them signing Mookie Betts the way they did, what is that any different than the Yankees getting Reggie Jackson, even though Betts came over supposedly in a trade as opposed to being a free agent? The whole idea is, you know, you put well, the money out. This I mean, is my point. This is my point about the team getting rebuilt when George was gone. Who was the core of those championship teams? Andy Pettit, uh, Eric Jeter, Bernie Williams. What is Pisana, the difference? All homegrown guys. What's the difference between Steve Cohn and George Steinbrenner? Steve Cohn is perceived as less of a meddler. He's like the little more, but they do business the same way. You didn't ask they, me to compare him, though. I didn't say he was better than George Steinbrenner. Steve Cohn is paying the big money. He's buying guys, basically. Nothing wrong with that. He gave Lindor that ridiculous contract. Shirts say he's paid him off the charts for three years, $130 million well, for three years. Look at the game's changed as far as that goes. Uh, even when free agency was in, it's still in its infancy when George was uh, going after all these guys in the seventies and then into the eighties. The game's so much different now from that, even from a business standpoint, than it was then. Everybody's moving around now. Every you know nobody stays. You know Derek Jeter comes up today, or 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 Jose Jorge Posada. They, they're not going to stay with one team. It, you're not going to see guys play 20 years with a team anymore. It's just not going to happen. Willing to take less, if they're willing to take a little less money, they would, they could. In the case of Freddie Freeman, he, he could have worked it out with Atlanta, maybe taken one less year in the contract, and then when the contract was up, if he was still effective, Atlanta wasn't, you know, they would keep him at their price at least. He was look at he was the heart of that team. Look where they are right now. I know they were there last year and they can come back, but Freddie Freeman was part of that equation last year. Great leader, more than numbers. Freddie Freeman is more than numbers guy. Aaron Judge is more than a numbers guy. And teams discount this. They look at numbers and uh, whatever. Yeah, well, that's why I agree with the Aaron Judge situation, guys. I feel the Yankees didn't put their best foot forward to sign him before the year. They go public with the offer. Even though it's a fair offer, Aaron Judge could do better on the open market at the end yeah. of the year. And the Yankees should have addressed that yeah. and came out with their very best offer. And now they're going to increase their offer later on. And then and they're going to give him an offer that chances are he would have signed for. But now he's going to wait. He might even get a better one elsewhere. It takes just one team to blow, blow it away. I mean, well, we know it's going to be the Phillies. I mean, well, they're going to go free agent again and come up with something massively big. Releasing that, that what he turned down was obviously a, a ploy to get the fans on the yeah. and against Aaron right. Boone as management has done for years. And it didn't work. I'm uh, not Aaron. I said, Aaron Boone, Aaron judge. Um, it backfired on him. And it's certainly what all you need to know about what Aaron and Aaron, Judge is worth more to the Yankees than he is any other franchise in my mind yeah. because of the marketing, because of everything else. Look at that situation in Toronto with that kid and the Toronto fan. And that that is worth so much money to a team that's worth $7 billion. You give him what he needs. I don't care. He's worth it because it's more than what he produces on the field that he brings to that team and that organization. Well, let's see. Yeah. And that's why we come here for our Yankee talk. I can't stand the Yankees. You know, I'm not a big <laughs> fan whatsoever. Yeah, you're but... Yankees light. Are you kidding me with Girardi, D.D. Gregorius? <laughs> I mean, uh, come on. 
Yeah, and uh, I don't know how much longer Girardi's going to say because he's New York and he's not Philly, and that's yeah. part of the problem. If he was more Philly, I think that they would be more loved, and he's not. And that, that's why we talk about the fact that he's on the hot seat all the time. You know, plus, uh, you know, it, it, he's just so lackluster when he has his – those after-game press conferences that he has where he's just sitting back in the chair and he's all slouched and he's just like – so miserable to want to even talk to the media. It's He's just, been that way his entire career. Yeah, I, I hear you. He's happy to be in Philly at this point. What's your thoughts, Pags? He doesn't look happy, does he, Pags? No, <laughs> no, he doesn't. And I think that, I think that the problem is, is that you can get kind of lost in New York with sports media because all the other sports teams that are around can take precedence when you're not doing so well. In Philadelphia, that's not the case. There's nothing else happening in the summertime. So if the Phillies aren't doing well, you are in the middle of that, and you're stuck in the middle of that. And that's part of the job here in Philly. When you win a championship, they build you a statue. When you don't win a championship, they let you know the reasons why. And we're smart enough to know why some of these reasons are. And that's when he starts to get offensive. Same thing with Doc Rivers. You know, Doc gets offended by the fact that somebody actually knows what they're talking about a little bit. And he gets frustrated and you know, they don't want to talk to the media because they can't hide anywhere. In Philly, there is no hiding place. In New York, there is hiding. So that's why I feel like that's the biggest difference between sports in New York and sports in Philly. Didn't Nick Foles get a statue? Nick Foles has a statue. You know, so does, so does, so does uh, Bobby Clark. So does Perrant. You know, anybody does Mike Schmidt have a trophy or a statue? Uh, you know what? I'd be willing to bet that there is someone. There's one. I out would there. hope so. Jeez. Yeah, I think there's one out there. Because, like it says, you win championships, you get you get statues. That's every how guy, that works. But every guy you mentioned after Nick Foles is was certainly a greater player in his sport than Nick Foles overall. Right. Over, and, and I want to say, I, yes, kind of uh, maybe that one play because it was a charismatic <laughs> play. That's what it is. Yeah, you know, I know you Harry Callis has a you know a statue oh, in the ballpark. To, so. He's got to have a statue. You know, we talked Chuck Bednarik. Now, I mean, Pax mentions Mike Schmidt. If Philadelphia, who is the greatest? Well, you talk pound for pound, sport for sport, the greatest Philly player of all time in the four major sports. If we combine them, uh, is it Mike Schmidt? From the outside, I would. I'll, yeah, I'll, 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 I mean, off the top of my head, I'd say maybe yes. Off the top of my head, yeah. taking out Wilt Chamberlain. If you take oh, Wilt Chamberlain out of that career mix, with the Sixers, Point. that's the thing that works against them. Yeah, so I mean, because he was there with the Philadelphia Warriors, and you know, you could think about the A's going back to the day and all that other stuff. But I, I would have to say Mike Schmidt is definitely, you know, is definitely the top Philly of all time. You know, and. Yeah. You know, then you you put him up against like you know I, I think that Allen Iverson has a little bit of an edge over Dr. J just because of his iconic you know how, hmm. how iconic he was. Uh, when you think that's of that's shocking to me, you would say he was that. more he play, he was more of a Philly a Philadelphia 76 a play overall because Dr. J had another identity a little bit with the Nets. Yeah, but I, yeah, I he, he ingrained himself in Philly. But you know, yeah, when you think of Dr. J, he couldn't get the chip until he got Moses. You know what yeah. I mean? And that's yeah. that's always on his resume that he needed Moses to win the chip. So you know, when you think of Allen, Allen literally carried that entire team to one win against. Okay, Allen Iverson and Mike Schmidt. 
just because of the chip, you'd have to say Schmidt. Yeah. I don't, I don't think that I don't know the chat. I just think Mike Schmidt was a model of consistency the whole way through, a model of greatness. Iverson would have his up and down moments battling with Larry Brown, where Brown felt the team could have. Oh, been do you think Mike Schmidt? Mike Schmidt, he wore the wig on the fields, if you remember, because yeah, he was trying. So, I mean, there was there was some moments with Mike Schmidt as well. You know that. You know, like I said, I, I as a very young kid, I remember that. Like so, it's. It wasn't always, you know, great for Mike. You know, he was. He Who was it always great for, though, Pegs? I mean, the fans in Philadelphia, and they're smart fans. I'm not taking anything away from them, but they're they're hot, they're tough. Yes. I mean, who 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 did escape that wrath from time to time? Chase was there Utley. anybody that really did? Chase Utley. Chase Utley. For some reason or other, Chase Utley. Uh, was given passes left and right, left and mm. right. You know, when he would go through slumps, it would just be like, oh, he's going to get himself out of it. I, the one thing, so he always played really hard, almost to the point of maybe a touch dirty. You know, and, and that edge is what endeared him to Philadelphia. Yeah. You know, and then the the you know the world champions as he expressed it also kind of did that to him you know when i think of uh, stuff like that and then you turn around and you think of like jason kelsey and how he did it and he did it he used that word with so much more class in, in terms of how it was expressed either way you know they literally went ahead and said that on live television and radio and everything and and both got away with it with nary a, a slap on the hands yeah. Now, Pax, so, getting back, if you said Bobby Clark, maybe that, you know, he'd be in the equation it, too. The problem is, is that Bobby Clark, when I, like I said, as I start to remember him, once you got past those Stanley Cups and, and you got him in 80s, in the 80s, it, it, he started to trail off. And then it was, they, they haven't won a cup since then. And that yeah. was part of the problem. Like if he was a GM, I mean, he took them to the Stanley Cup a couple of times, but they never was able to get over that hump. Had they won another Stanley Cup at any other time, that that may have cemented him as being in that top tier. But without that, I don't think he. I don't think he is. I, I think Keith would agree with this. The best combination player slash executive of all time, we'd have to say, was Jerry West. Oh, without a doubt. No. So it, it, Carlos is saying Utley or Dykstra. Dykstra does not get as much. Dykstra doesn't get in the conversation. The greatest <laughs> ever. I mean, greatest, no, no. most charismatic, maybe get in the discussion. So, and I'm friends with Dykstra. I actually have him on my speed dial. So just, I, I, not to talk bad about him, but he, you know, he, it was an embodiment of that 93 team. But he straight out said, you know, on live television, you know, that he they were taking steroids because he's like, well, how do you, you know, when a, when a reporter asked, well, what do you attribute this great hitting and stuff like that that you guys do? And he says, it's good vitamins. <laughs> he said that yeah. on TV. And, you know, obviously, he's, I mean, it's Lenny Dykstra. So it's, you know, you could take it a little bit with a grain of salt because he was so charismatic and funny and things like that. But, you know, ultimately, he's, you know, well, you Pax, saw how partial, like so Keith will have to answer this because you're partial. Keith, I mentioned Lenny Dykstra. What do you think of him? Is Matt or Philly? A Matt. You think of him as a Matt? Yeah, a Matt. 
Yeah, and he was a big part of this, uh, the miniseries that ESPN just did, and it, it's escaping about the 86 Mets. I can't think of the name of it now. Uh, something in Queens. I can't remember the name yeah. of it. But he, he was, some of his uh, pieces of the interviews they did with him were just like, you must watch TV. I mean, mm-hmm. and he has a little trouble. I don't know what's going on with him. But maybe it's just the, the his life has caught up with him, but he talks kind of slow, and I don't know if something's happened to him health-wise. I know he's, he's lived a hard life. He's, 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 he, yeah, that paper route got really tough. After yeah, baseball. yeah, yeah. So, but, I, I mean, he's he's – Hey, he's he's st- he's keeping himself out of trouble right now, and that's, that's really most important. You know, as he's getting older, maybe he's getting a little smarter. You know, sometimes you shouldn't tweet, you know, things so much, but yeah. you know, everybody's got their issues. A lot know, of guys got my issue. Yes. Well, you know, I don't like this tweeting stuff. I mean, it came out in the news. Nesta what <clears throat> has tweeted something long ago. Sometimes someone. Let's tweet something either foolish, taken out of context. People do change over years. They get different viewpoints. So yeah. I don't want to hear from a lot of years ago someone tweeted something out. And it could be a totally 17 years old. Years later. Right. I mean, imagine someone eight years old and they tweeted something. And Josh then, Allen. Josh Allen it. It hurt Josh Allen in the NFL draft because some of the stuff came out that he'd done it said in high school. And, you know, come on, high school kids are, they don't know anything. They're stupid. You know, even the smart ones are stupid. So you, I, I can't hold right. that against guys. So, oh, yeah, no, if, if, yeah. If you're saying it still when you're 50, well, then maybe there's a trend there, you know? So, no, I mean, people do change and they, yeah. and they get silly and they say stuff and I, it, it annoys me the way, you know, and the people that discover this, it's like they have nothing better to do with their life than to try to look up and get any dirt they can on someone. And they take something out of context. And then it gains momentum by these other yeah. idiots keep pointing to it, pointing to it, pointing to it. And it's as if they're, they're looking to destroy someone's life. Yeah. Misery loves company. And yeah. that's the problem with social In this media. Country, that- for sure. You know, and that's that's part of the biggest problem with social media is that uh, that people are unhappy just in general, and when there's drama, they will make sure to create more drama. And, and they're the people that are active. The positive people aren't active on Facebook, right? I mean, that's why I told my wife and I had this conversation the other day. Why do I see so many negative tweets? I said, because those are the people that are vocal. The right, people yeah. that are happy aren't going to go out there and tell them say how wonderful their life is day after day after day. But the people well, are especially miserable. because they get beat up by the people yeah. that aren't happy. Well, that's a good point. Yeah. So yeah, why would like you want that? I, 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 prime example here. You know, I'm always trying to talk positive about my teams, and I get, you know, it's actually the haters that talk the most because yeah. I'm positive. They're not about haters. My if your team's not doing well, they're entitled to criticize the team. Packs and not they haters. can criticize all they want, but it's not it's not the criticism of the team that they're talking. They actually talk at me. They criticize me for being positive about my team. Yeah, yeah. It's not about. It's not necessarily about the team. It's about me personally. There's one athlete who would call you a hater, Pax. Russell Westbrook would call you a hater. Oh, what Russell Westbrook? Absolutely. I don't think Russell Westbrook would talk to me. He'd probably take a swing. Uh, he <laughs> was know, not very happy chance. with me. He's and he's never been very happy with me. So I have and a I, gut I, feeling he's coming to the Sixers. I just no have that way. There ain't a chance. Know. There's no chance in in 
Yeah, no way. There's absolutely zero zero. Tobias Harris for Russell Westbrook, even up the Lakers. Never, 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 never. I don't think Doc Rivers wants anything to do with him. Well, uh, you know, you you want to talk about weirdness? They were talking about Doc Rivers being traded to the Lakers for a second round pick. I could see them trying to offer Russell Westbrook for Doc Rivers. Interesting. And I I would not, I'd still not be interested. I would not want him on this team at all. I feel like not only is his his skills diminished, is that he's a cancer. He's a cancer. And the reason why the Lakers don't want him is because not only is he a cancer, he's a crybaby cancer. So it's just, and you want to talk about soft. I don't don't think it's an attitude thing with Russell Westbrook. I just think it's the nature of how he plays the game. I don't think it's an attitude that he doesn't buy in. I think he buys in, but he's like a locomotive. You need... You need a low, uh, you train to stop locally, it stops, and he's an express train. He keeps on going and it throws off the chemistry. Well, yeah, I, I can agree a little bit, but I just, I don't think he's got it anymore. And the fact that he does, he's probably one of those players that has already played the two years past he should have, and he's going to play another two years. And all it's doing is it's affecting the way that he's going to be looked at throughout the rest of his life, let alone. You know, to be crying about, oh, you're, oh, you're called Westbrick and you're, you're, you are, my name is just now destroyed because you want to call me Westbrick. Are you kidding me? Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's, that's how you defend yourself mm. by saying you're, you're destroying my name and the, you know, just, it's like, come on. Like that's, that is so weenie. Like that's the only thing I, that he's a weenie. He's mentally, he's a mental midget when it comes to stuff like that. And the criticism he cannot handle, he'd never last in Philadelphia. It would get too much. You thought Ben Simmons was bad? Have Mike, have Westbrook here, and, and it would be, it would be uh, uh, just a disaster, an absolute disaster. Just my opinion. Back, I want to back up for a second. Something you said there. Did they retain Doc Rivers with the with the intention of looking to trade him for something? Well, they didn't retain him. He's still part. He's still got three years of a five year deal. No, they, well, they retained him. He got trade value. Well, who would? Well, they didn't fire him because he still got three years of a five year deal. They just now finished paying Brown off from his deal, and so I, I feel that the Harris Group is not willing to just throw money away right now. You know, they're spending a lot of money on players that, you know, obviously they're trying to figure out what to do with this $47 million for Harden, whether he's going to opt into that player option or he's going to sign for a three-year $30 million deal a year, you know, that's which is and, kind uh, of what you're hearing a little bit now um, so that they could go out and get another player. And then, of course, Tobias Harris is the, you know, the catch in this whole mix is because he's got this max deal and has he been living up to that max deal? Uh, you know, the talk of him being a little on the softer side is, you know, come up this week. And, you know, well, of course everybody's crying about the fact that the Sixers lost. Yeah. But if Doc took another job and the, and the Sixers let him walk away, they would owe him nothing. Correct. Well, wait, uh, why would that same thing with the trade? So. Right. 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 Keith, why would Doc Rivers be in demand anywhere right now? Isn't his reputation, I don't want to use the word tarnished, but diminished as a coach? I mean, who would want to go out aggressively for Doc Rivers? He'd just be one of several candidates. Because that's what we do. They they rehash coaches until they're absolutely 
burned out. He still wins games, and he's got a national. He's got a championship under his belt, and but his stock has went down with the sixes, though. Yeah, but he's still a players' coach. Yeah. I mean, so the one is he really thing, a players' coach? I mean, yeah, the one thing that I it? saw the moment that I was at the Nets game when the Nets came and Ben Simmons was on the bench, you know, is that when Ben Simmons came over to the Sixers side of the ball you know, like, and just was doing for the jump around and just kind of throwing the ball to other people, how Doc, you know, gave him a fist pump and a half a hug and talked to him for a minute. And, you know, and that, I think, you know, it's, you could say whatever you want. And being in Philadelphia, obviously, you don't want to talk to the enemy, but that's not how that works. And in the fraternity of basketball, I think that he's held to a a higher revere to the players for things of that nature, for being able to, like he had Ben Simmons's back better than any other coach that I could think of would have had it, you know, and, and trying to coddle him as best as possible. And it was the one statement that he said that kind of set Ben Simmons off was like, well, I don't know if, you know, like when, when he didn't have a good answer when he was put on the spot after that game seven against Atlanta, you know, it's like, well, you didn't have my back at that point. I don't want to play for you anymore. Now, I think that was more on Ben Simmons being soft. And I think that it's looked around the league at Ben Simmons is super soft. But that Doc tried to do everything he could <clears throat> to get him to fit in the mix. And that shows to teams like the Lakers that are full of, the, I mean, what's the average age? About 38 years old there on the Lakers. You want a coach that's going to be able to appeal to all of those players and deal with all of those egos and not get in the way. He traded his son-in-law to the Nets as far as being a player. Well, he didn't. More I did. And, <laughs> you know, obviously those things happen, you know, so – He'll you know, get he come back if he wants. Keith, give us a next update. He doesn't want one. Keith, any Knicks update? Any potential Knicks news? Uh, anything out there yeah. at all? Not much. Not much new. I mean, they they obviously I think are working on the on where they've got so many directions they can go. They're probably working on their draft selection now. The biggest decision was to actually send somebody from the front office to the uh, draft lottery, which is big news in New York. Apparently, who's going? They should make. This is where. That the you know, uh, uh, oh my God, I, I, the owner's name has just slipped out of my mind. James Where, Dolan. Thank you, James Dolan. Again, another guy who doesn't show his face has wrecked a franchise. He had to, he had to go sit there in that dais and 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 let let the fans uh, take out their wrath on him, but he'll never do it. Wait, wait, so. why do we always blame James Dolan? Okay, maybe he's not the nicest guy, but is he really interfering? But is he really interfering? I think so. Yes, definitely. I think it's been again. Look at the, you don't have this type of of uh, awful management, awful teams through this long a period of time, unless there's that's rotting from the head down. It it is. And James Dolan, he leaves the Rangers alone. The Rangers compete. He leaves the Rangers wait, alone. Wait, 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 wait. But if the Rangers didn't win, you'd say, well, it's because of James Dolan. He interferes. If the Knicks no. were winning. No one would say anything negative about uh, anything about James Dolan. No, no, that's not the. It's not true. I mean, he he he's done things. Look, just forcing Isaiah Thomas to go coach the team when he was here, which was a mistake that he was here in the first place. But he hired Larry was a disaster, and he forced Isaiah to go manage the team or coach the team because I'm not going to pay another coach. 
Got more money than God. He he he, he, he paid Phil Jackson twelve million a year. That was a dumb move to another make. Another mistake. Unless he was coaching a team, that was a bad. bad but it move. was Phil Jackson. The brand of Phil Jackson was off the charts. You know, that guy's so a great coach. I and can't can understand the move on the surface, even though I didn't like it. He has Tom Thibodeau's coach. He's not firing Tom Thibodeau. So it's not like he's interfering. Get me another coach. I don't know that he doesn't want him fired like Carlos does, but. Yeah, he's just saying that there's just better coaches in total with the Rangers than there are with the Knicks. Wait a minute. I don't think he was such a big uh, fan of Galat getting hired in New York, by the way, Carlos. I got to call, call you out there a little bit. But he allowed it to take place. Dolan could have stopped that hiring. He could have, but he leaves, he leaves the Rangers it. alone, and he's told, he's got his hands in everything that happens around the Knicks. Charles Oakley can't come to the arena because James well, Dolan Oakley, come, come Oakley gets in the stands, and he's starting to yell in the he's a revered, He's a revered figure to the fans, and you can't be banning those types of guys from the – I'm not saying he's a perfect person, but he didn't do anything that ought to get him banned for life from Madison. No, I agree. He should have tried to work it out with Charles Oakley, but Charles Oakley could be a difficult individual. Let's I don't disagree, but what's James Dolan? He's not a difficult individual? Yeah. Gosh. When you have that much money and you start to have that much say, of course you're going to be difficult. Because he's a petulant I, child. Yeah, but he, you, he still wants to win, I'm sure. And that's part of the problem. Like you think you have your idea about winning and then yeah. it, it doesn't actually come to fruition. You start to wonder, you start to fight it, you know, and I can imagine that's, that's the problem with a lot of owners, you know, like you think of some of these owners that I feel like when you're an owner of a team, most of the time you want to win and you want to do everything that you can to win. So you, you try to formulate a plan based off mm -hmm. of how you were able to win and everything else in life. And when that plan doesn't come to fruition and, you know, and, and another aspect of your life, you start to get frustrated because you don't know, you know, and, you know, with the Rangers, he was able to step away and put other people in place. And maybe he needs to do the same thing with basketball. Yeah. When he brought Donnie Walsh in here, he let Donnie Walsh run the show until they started to get good. And then he started to, then he pushed Donnie Walsh out because Donnie Walsh couldn't deal with him anymore. No, so, I agree. At that time, you're right, Keith. I'm I'm, I'm thinking of the last decade. Or so. And he started uh, turning it around. That team was on its way, and yeah, you know, he just said, that, that was the beginning of the end. So yeah, I mean, hey, listen. At least they're working on their golf game. I'm sure their golf game is much better than. Yeah, I'm sure it's awesome game. right now. I'm thinking. Uh... <laughs> so Keith, well, thank you very much for coming on for a little bit longer than you were normally on here. But like I said, I'm usually the one that's backing you up, and I, uh, you know. Well, you did a better job filling Mac's shoes than I did filling yours, I'm sure. So you're Keith welcome. Fills in. He's the Mac and Jack's uh, version of uh, Brett Gardner. Gaudy. He fills in for all the guys. I'm sure that I'm sure that excites him tremendously. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm I'm that good at uh, you know just to be called that way. I'm perfect. So at least I, at least every leaf pitch, you know, I could come in and get the three the three inning save. So yeah. there you go. Goose Gossage, we'll call him. He's the Goose Gossage of the team. There you go. Perfect. That's a little bit better than what the name he was saying. So, well, thank you very much for coming on, and I'm sure you guys are on on Sunday. You come on on Sunday as well. Yep, I'll be on Sunday with the stream account. Oh, I do come up with these guys uh, at eight ten, yes, and I have my own show at nine o'clock, and uh, we have a lot of fun Sunday morning, Sue. There you go. So find Keith on TGI Sports. He's on there all the time. Uh, that background gets a lot of play. I'm always seeing it up there on Facebook. Awesome. And, and so, <laughs> awesome. uh, thanks, Keith, for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a Take good care, weekend. Keith. You too. Bye bye.
All right. And here we are. See, it, look at how quickly two hours passed by, Jack. And we were unsure how this was going to go. <laughs> yeah, I always love talking sports on the shows. And then I get a call sometimes late on a friend and he wants to talk sports, you know. So uh, I like my best sports talk to be for these shows. I don't know how good it is, but it, you know, it goes back and forth. Yeah, I'm in that same boat. Sometimes I think that, uh, you know, I've got a lot to say and other times I realize how much I don't have to say. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but everybody, thank you very much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. And make sure to tune in tomorrow where Mac will be back uh, to talk uh, sports with Jack. And I think tomorrow is their debate show. So, you know, I'm sure that it's a, a flowered shirt by Jack and Mac is going to have a lot to say, trying mm -hmm. to cut Jack off all the time. So I let Jack uh, kind of go a little bit today. Yeah, yeah, you so. gave me you gave me some rope. I was surprised, Pax. It's not like you. You let me go on and on. You were countering. You were trying to catch me in a mistake. I know you were listening. Yeah, and, sometimes, and, but uh, you, you were pretty good today. So no mistakes. But mm -hmm. uh, again, tune in tomorrow. Thanks for everybody tuning in, and uh, we'll see you later. Okay, great job, Pax. All the best. Thank you.